0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast on the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1-22. through What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics. For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's study takes us to Revelation chapter 12. We've seen that the book of Revelation seems to have come to a climax in chapter 11. The question seems to be, how are the nations going to be converted? How are the, the, the people of the world going to be redeemed so that the nations will walk in the light of the new Jerusalem? How is God's presence going to be restored back to his people and back uh, amongst his creation? Or shall we say, how is it that the throne of God, which is in heaven in chapter 4, is going to come down to the earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And we've seen that the answer is it's not going to come down through judgment. Wrath does not bring the nations to repentance. Instead, it comes down by the loving, faithful, sacrificial, persevering witness of God's people. When God's people lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in loving witness, and then are resurrected into into heaven in full view of men, then the nations repent. And as a result, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Revelation chapter 12 now takes us to what appears to be another story. David Barr, one of the great scholars in the book of Revelation, says that Revelation 12 marks the third story. Uh, I don't believe that that's actually the case. I think that Revelation 12 uh, is simply adding more details, giving us more insight as to what was going on in Revelation chapter 11, the second story. Now, it's kind of like the relationship between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Some people believe that we have two different creation accounts. I don't think that's the case. I think the creation account in Genesis 2 is simply giving us more details as to what happened in particular on the sixth day of creation in the Genesis chapter 1 account. So also, Revelation 22 and following is giving us more details as to what this war is all about. What does it mean that the beast comes up out of the abyss and makes war with the two witnesses and overcomes them and kills them? So, Revelation chapter 12 now is simply going to add details as to what's going on. Chapter twelve details the hostility between the serpent and the woman, very similar then to the end of Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, where God tells the serpent, "I'll put enmity between you and your wo- and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You shall bru- he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." Revelation chapters twelve through fifteen might be understood then as a commentary on Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Uh, chapter twelve is going to detail the hostility between the serpent and the woman. Chapter 13 is then then going to detail the hostility between the serpent's seed, the beast, and the seed of the woman. Perhaps we should understand the wounded head of the beast as a result of the cross, the the crushing of the serpent's head. We'll note also, of course, the Exodus imagery throughout these chapters. The dragon is referred to as Pharaoh in the book of Psalms, Isaiah, uh, and Ezekiel. There's a wilderness themes uh, going through on these passages. There's a reference to them being nourished in the context of manna that comes from heaven. So in chapter 12, 1-6, God seems to protect Christ and the Messianic community against satanic harm. There's a great sign appeared in heaven, chapter 12, verse 1 says, A woman was clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. A woman clothed with the sun, it says, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This reminds us, of course, of the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 9 through 10, where Joseph Joseph has a dream, and he tells his brothers, Genesis 37, verse 9, he says, still he had another dream, and he related it to his brothers. And he said, lo, I have had another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down to you before the ground? It's pretty apparent that the book of Revelation is alluded in the book of Genesis. Even though Revelation says there's 12 stars, that's simply not a problem. After all, Jewish conviction was that Joseph himself was the 12th star. This woman then is going to uh, c- contrast uh, the harlot Babylon. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see four women Jezebel, uh, the false prophetess in Revelation chapters 2 and, and following. We're going to see this woman clothed with the sun in Revelation chapter 12. We're going to see Babylon, the harlot Babylon, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And then we're going to see the bride, the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. This woman is going to cry out in pain. Uh, throughout the New Testament, the verb for crying out is u- used for the suffering of punishment, trial, and persecution. It's never used of childbirth. It's used for the suffering of the inhabitants of the earth during their judgment in chapter 9. Then, of course, a red dragon who's described to us as Satan in verse 9. This says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. Who is the devil and Satan? So we know the dragon, Satan. He's probably modeled in the ancient Leviathan, a powerful symbol in the Old Testament world of opposition to God. Represents the mightiest and fiercest of all the animals in creation. And represents the forces of chaos defeated by God at creation as well. In the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the Leviathan represents whatever political power that there is that opposes Israel. Though here the dragon transcends the political sphere, the fact that he represents the, the ultimate power of the supernatural evil is evidenced by the fact that he's called the devil. In the book of Job, God defeats the dragon. In the Old Testament, Egypt is, by the way, portrayed as a sea monster, representing the primary opponent of God's people, especially Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3. And, chapter, and this is supported by a reference to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 24, where the beast also has ten horns and resides in the sea. The ten horns, of course, probably mocking, to some extent, Christ's seven horns. The beast has ten horns. The false prophet, we'll find out in chapter 13, has two horns like a lamb. Now, red is the description of this dragon, of course. Evil characters are often described as red in the book of Revelation, uh, representing war. The devil himself is a representative head of these evil kingdoms, so it makes sense that he's described as being red. His tail sweeps away a third of the stars. Now we know of course that stars represent angels in chapter 1 verse 20. and perhaps the fact that they are fallen or thrown down to the earth might indicate that these are fallen angels or demonic beings. This is perhaps the main reference behind the notion that a third of the star, a third of the angels uh, fell and, and became followers of the devil. and it makes sense and it fits, though we can't be absolutely certain that that's actually the case throughout the biblical world. this is the only reference we have to it. Then the last, the dragon stood before the woman so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. If the woman might simply be designated as Israel, the Old Testament people of God, I I, I have trouble with the words Israel and the church because it often makes false disjunctions for many Christians these days. I prefer to use the designation the people of God. If the woman represents the people of God in the Old Testament world, which is essentially Israel, prior to the time of Christ, then the child that the woman is about to give birth to must be, of course, the Christ child. After all, it says she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a citation from Psalm 2 verse 9, and Psalms 2 is applied throughout the New Testament to Jesus. So, this is the woman is, is the people of God in the Old Testament time frame. The child is Christ, and the dragon stood before the woman so he might devour her child the moment it was born. Likely a reference to Herod's decree. In a sense, then, what's happening in this particular passage is. John is giving us more details as to what's going on in this war that the beast wages against the two witnesses. The first thing that John tells us is that this war is none other than the war orchestrated by the devil. The devil has always opposed God's people. He stood before the woman, and when the woman gave birth to a child, he tried to oppose God's people even then and devour the child, perhaps referring indeed to Herod's decree to have all the kids in Bethlehem to and under slaughtered. The devil has always opposed God's people then. Don't be surprised that a beast comes up out of the abyss and makes war with the two witnesses, the devil's always opposed God's people. But nonetheless, the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. John's obviously not concerned with all the features of Jesus' ministry. What's important here is the fact that Jesus died, appeared to be defeated, yet he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. So also, the two witnesses die, appear to be defeated, after all the people send gifts to one another for three and a half days, but they too rise and ascend into heaven. Verse 6 says that the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Now again, note the time frame, 1,260 days, clearly connects us with the account of the two witnesses, who will prophesy for 42 months and 1,260 days. It says here that the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was protected by God. One of the things that an average person who's studying the Bible for themselves and trying to learn how to Uh, understand the Bible itself, one of the things that you can do is to find a good Bible dictionary. Uh, IVP has a good Bible dictionary, and so do many other publishers. Uh, um, uh, The Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary is a wonderful one as well. And what you do with those uh, Bible dictionaries is look up key words like wilderness. You don't want to know the meaning of the word wilderness, and some people just simply do, oh, let's just do word studies and see what these words mean. The meaning of the words are often fairly clear. Uh, Whenever there's a any significant you know, variation in the meaning of a word or the nuance of a word, you can simply find out the meaning, what that nuance is by comparing multiple English translations. Instead, you want to find out what the word symbolizes or what the significance of the word is. For example, the, the woman fled into the wilderness. Well, what is the wilderness in the scripture? Uh, what, what does it mean that she fled into the wilderness? Note, of course, that, that refers to the book of Exodus where the Israelites were rescued out of Egyptian slavery and there they were taken into the wilderness. The wilderness then becomes a place of trial and tribulation, a place of suffering and struggles. But it's also a place where God provided the manna every single day. It's a place where God provides his provision, his protection, his sanctuary. The wilderness is also where Moses meets God up on the mountain and God reveals himself to the Israelites. Now it says here that the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. The word tapas is the Greek word for place and it's used as a place where Christians are kept safe from the devil. However, it's also the place where the devil attacks. Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, and Daniel 9, verse 27. This goes along with what we said in the last chapter. The two witnesses are divinely protected by God. They're measured. The altar and the temple of God, uh, the altar and those who worship in it are are measured. However, the outer court is not measured, and it will be trampled on by the nations. So also the people of God then are in this place where they're they're safe from the devil, yet at the same time, subject to the attacks of the devil, persecution and suffering. So this corresponds then with the idea of the the desert as a place of trial and tribulation and temptation, but also a place of refuge in the time of trial. Now, one thing that's interesting to note is that the only other occasion in the New Testament where where the word place and the word prepared are paired together is in John chapter 14, where Jesus tells the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. I believe, and it's a side note here that we can't delve into much detail on today. I believe that if you look at John 14 carefully, Jesus is not describing that he's going up uh, something like he's going up into heaven to prepare a place for them, and then he's going to come back from heaven and resurrect all the God's people and bring them to heaven where he's got a place prepared for them. I think John 14 is describing the fact that Jesus is leaving and preparing a place here on earth for them. When he comes back, it will be in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, "I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you." And then he goes on to describe that the Father will send the Spirit. The Jesus is leaving and in doing so preparing here on earth a place for the disciples where they'll be protected by God but also be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And also as a result of that, they will suffer persecution and opposition. John 14, 15, and 16 seems to parallel the story here in the book of Revelation that God's people are divinely protected. God's people then taken into a wilderness where they're provided for or nourished for 1,260 days, but at the same time, it's also a place where the devil persecutes. Uh, One commentator said, Israel's pursuit into the desert where she is kept safe by God is an essential element of the Exodus story. Revelation 12, verse 7 then picks it up. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels angels were waging war with the devil, or with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life, even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. This is one of two legal scenes in the book of Revelation, the other being chapter 18, verses 20 through chapter 19, verse 4. There's war in heaven, we're told. Michael versus Satan. In apocalyptic literature, angels and demons represent Israel and the evil kingdoms. The heavenly counterpart to Christ's victory on earth at the cross is uh, in his resurrection. In other words, what's happening in heaven is 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 replicating what happened here on the earth. But because Christ rose from the dead and was victorious on the earth, so Satan loses in heaven, and Satan is hurled down to the earth. Note Daniel chapter two verses thirty one through forty five. He's a serpent of old. reminds reminds us of the creation account, the creation story. He's also referred to as the deceiver. Uh, Note how often now, from this point forward, especially in the book of Revelation, lying and deception are going to be very significant elements of those that are condemned to the lake of fire. There's no longer a place found for them. And as a result, a voice in heaven says, um, uh, now have come the salvation of the power and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. With the defeat of Satan, by Christ's death on the cross, the long-for victory of God's sovereign rule has already arrived, has already begun. The devil has two, two words here, the diabolos, which means the slanderer, or the, uh, slanderous or the slanderer, and ha satanas, which means the adversary. Satan was the accuser of the brothers, but with Christ's redemptive death and resurrection, he has no more basis for such accusations any longer. In, in the New Testament, as well as in rabbinic writings, Satan has a, duties as a legal prosecutor, frequently with Michael as the counsel for his defense. So Satan is seen several times in the Old Testament world going before God's throne and accusing the brothers. Hey, you, you know, he only follows you because, because uh, uh, you, you've done all these things. You've, you've blessed him so much in the book of Job. Uh, curse him and he'll surely, he'll surely curse you to your face. Satan is the uh, accuser. But because of the cross of Christ, the accuser has no more grounds of accusation. Perhaps we might conclude that Satan's grounds of accusation was that no redemption has actually been provided for God's people. Before Jesus, he has a legitimate argument. Uh, Abraham and Sarah and all the people of God in the Old Testament world, they've been permitted into God's presence, but but their sins have never been atoned for. Remember the book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. So Satan has a a rightful, legitimate accusation. These people don't deserve to be here. But once the cross and the resurrection of Christ has come, Satan has no longer any grounds for accusation. We're told that the battle is won because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life, even to death. it says, they overcame him. Remember that word, overcome, and it's prominence in the book of Revelation. The seven churches, each church is told, the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes. Then we're told that the beast will overcome the two witnesses. And we thought that we thought that the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. How could Satan or the beast overcome God's people? Well, they only apparently overcame God's people. You see, it's through death that God's people rise again. And through the resurrection, that God's people are victorious. So they overcame him because of the, word of, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. Remember how significant the phrase the word of God and the testimony of Jesus was. And note again here that these two are combined. It's the word of their testimony. But also note that they did not love their life even to death. So we've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We've been made members of His kingdom. And as a result of being members of His kingdom, we have the name of God in our foreheads. But the purpose for which we're saved, for which we become members of God's kingdom, is so that we might bear the word of our testimony. But in doing so, we will have to suffer death. So, these men and women have, been, have overcome because of the blood of the Lamb, the word in their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. And in other words, in the book of Revelation, overcome means be faithful, even if it costs you your life. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Woe to the earth and the sea. This parallels the book of Revelation, by the way, where the kings and the merchants of the earth mourn, as do all who make their living on the sea, but heaven rejoices. Victory in heaven means that the suffering of God's people here is going to actually increase and intensify. But at the same time, it's because the devil knows that he has only a short time. What's interesting is the devil has the same sense of imminence as God's people are supposed to have. Verse 13 then picks it up. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he... And he persecuted the woman, or pursued, depending on your translation, the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of, uh, of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly away into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time, and times and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of its mouth after the woman, so that he might cause it to be swept, swept away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and drank up the water which the dragon poured forth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon pursues or persecutes the woman. Note the Exodus imagery that's still going on here. When, when the Israelites are released from pharaohs in, in Egyptian captivity, that Egypt, the, the pharaoh pursued after the Israelites. Remember, pharaoh was often personified as a dragon. The book of Exodus describes God's uh, rescuing of the Israelites out of Egypt this way. Chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now indeed, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession for all the peoples, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Uh, uh, the book of Isaiah similarly says in verse chapter 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The dragon, it says here in Revelation chapter 12, pours water out of its mouth like a river in order to cause the woman to be uh, swept away. A flood and mouth both indicate persecution and tribulation. The mouth, of course, indicates the words or false teachings of the devil. Note, of course, the sword that comes out of Christ's mouth represents his words or the truth of the gospel. The imagery then of floodwaters and mouth uh, uh, indicates Satan's attempts to destroy the church by deception and false teaching. The fact that he's referred to as a serpent also further cements the idea that Satan's primary weapon is his deception. The earth, however, drank up the river. This reminds the Israelites of the Exodus where the earth swallowed the Egyptians. Similar to the sealing and measuring then uh, where God's divine protection over God's people is indicated. This time it's by means of the earth. The dragon was enraged, however, verse 17. And he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Note again the relationship between the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here it's referred to as the commandments of God. The description of the offspring of the woman as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus confirms the fact that the offspring of the woman are God's people, the church, those who follow Jesus and, and obey his commands. The narrative of Revelation chapter 12, then, has been highlighting and giving more details as to what the war is like against God's people referred to in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. The beast comes up out of the abyss and makes war against the saints. The first thing we realize from chapter 12 is that this war has been going on since the beginning. Satan has always opposed God's people. He's always opposed Israel or the people of God in the Old Testament. He opposed Christ and the Christ child, and now he stands opposed to God's people. Revelation chapter 13 is going to add even more detail, namely the identity of of the beast. In fact, we'll find out that there's two beasts that oppose God's people, and that these beasts are empowered by the dragon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.